I, um... Hi. Hi! <laughs> oh my goodness. It is, uh... It is a time. It is a time. A time. A wrinkle. Oh. In time. In time. <laughs> you know that when life gets lifey, I like to talk about uh -huh. creatures and planets. You love creatures. I love a I creature. Love yeah. And since there are lots of creatures in A Wrinkle in Time. Uh -huh. And A Wrinkle in Time is what we are currently discussing in this series. In this. Of this, of this podcast. Yes. That we like to call Pop DNA. Pop DNA. Because that is its name. <laughs> that is indeed its name. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, oh my gosh. We've lost everyone now. No, <laughs> they're, they're still gone. they're excited about it. There I can feel the They're all gone. I can I feel like, it coming in the too. air tonight. Hold on. This is too cringy. No. This is too cringy. I can't deal with these women who don't know how to introduce their podcast. We are lovely, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Okay. Yes, no, but you were you were going to talk about creatures because you love creatures. I do. Great and small. And not of this earth. <laughs> not mostly not of this earth. Perhaps Muppets. Oh, I love a Muppet. In our discussion with fictional hangover, <laughs> I described myself as a Muppet. You are I am a Muppet. You are indeed a Muppet. I'm a Muppet. Yes. Come on. Oh, for those who are for those who are not watching video, I was gesturing behind me to my labyrinth poster. Yes. Which contains many creatures. Yes. <laughs> which we And what would you could you term the creatures in Labyrinth Muppets? Because they were created by Jim Henson. <laughs> there is a war inside of me for the answer to There's that. A inside of me like could you call yoda a muppet i don't that's, that's what i'm <laughs> see i don't think so i think muppets okay. muppets tm are muppets and then uh -huh. i think there are specific brand mm -hmm. of creature because they had like the muppet show you wouldn't see like a mm -hmm. yoda or like anything from labyrinth on the muppet show although you should maybe that would be cool but yeah i think there are Creatures who were born in Jim Henson Studios, and then I think there are Muppets. In the same way that, like, a Sesame Street creature is not a Muppet. It's... Uh-huh, sure. It's a citizen But where are we standing Street. on Labyrinth, then, I think Because Jim Henson... I think they're distinctly Labyrinthian. Very involved. Mm -hmm. Labyrinthian. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh... I love Labyrinth. I do. We have to talk about Labyrinth one of these days. We do have to talk about Labyrinth one of these days. I think it's it might not fit into our discussion today, but I think that there is a case to be made of doing a side by side of Labyrinth and A Wrinkle in Time. Not just because of the creatures. But no. For other themes that are involved. Yeah. Themes of loss of okay. innocence, themes of, like, mm -hmm. young... Loss of innocence. Young female um, identifying... Ret retrieval. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Who's, like, coming of age. Yeah. And, like, rescuing of a close family member. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. And David Bowie is similar to <laughs> the man with red eyes. Like, they're yeah. similar. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And they both symbol symbolize things. Things and stuff. Mm -hmm. Things and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. And but how good is Michael Pena as the man with the red eyes? So good. Time? Oh, my gosh. So good. So good. Um, so, Rhonda, what did we talk about yes. last time? Oh, yes. Last time. What did... Last time we... Uh, we talked about how A Wrinkle in Time was formative to our childhoods. Um, Labyrinth was also formative to my childhood. Yeah. And yours, too. Um, that says a lot about us, I think. <laughs> I know. Um, and then we talked <laughs> We talked about the 
um the the two um film adaptations of a wrinkle in time mm-hmm. mostly the 2018 because it's recent and it you know it's the one that everybody knows um and it's good and then i <laughs> yes and then i of course found an excuse to talk about religion um yeah yeah uh because madeline langle was religious and wrote overtly religious themes yeah in in her books so I thought that was worth talking about. And then we talked about Mindy Kaling. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. She's Mrs. Who. <laughs> yeah. So that's, it was kind of a hodgepodge, honestly, because mm-hmm. it was like all the topics that we weren't sure where they were going to fit. So we just threw them all in. Um, and it's fine. <laughs> I think a free form discussion as an opener is a good thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that was that was last time. Um, I was promised creatures. Yes, creatures. In this installment and planets and creatures and planets. Creatures and planets and space travel. What is this Star Wars? What is um, this Star Wars? Um, and we're also going to talk about an exploration of. What genre even is this? Genre. What do we even call it? And I think that maybe through your discussion of the creatures and the planets and the Tesseract, Mm -hmm. that might kind of form some kind Mm -hmm. of foundation for us to start to determine what genre we're dealing with here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see. We'll see. Viewers, listeners... Um, let us know what conclusions you come to about what genre this is. Yeah. Um, because I'm curious. Because, you know, creatures are of fiction, but they're also of sci-fi. But then tesseracts are very distinctly scientific in geometry and that kind of thing. And you can't have a wrinkle in time without a tesser, without a tesseract. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, also connected to um the the Marvel universe. It is. Um, and that's what I was kind of hoping that we would that we would see in in A Wrinkle in Time twenty eighteen was that like at the end like Thor would show up or something. Yeah. And like, hey, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you got a Tesseract or Nick Fury. That would have been better, I think. That would have been great. Like I mean, they're both made by Disney. It was right there. It was right there. And I'm going to try my best not to talk about Arcane when I talk about Marvel Tesseracts, (laughs) because there's a similar thing in Arcane, but it's a circle, not a cube. But we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. Okay. (laughs) We're going to go full nerd this episode. (laughs) Let's do it. So I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to misquote Arthur C. Clarke this time. You always can. I'm the- <laughs> he deserves to be misquoted. Okay, go on. Okay, so we thought we would start the top of this episode with talking about some of these creatures because now that we're nine minutes in, now that okay. we're nine minutes <laughs> in, because <laughs> like I learned, I've been studying this book for like twenty years of my life, and I learned new things just in prepping for this episode. Like it's, it is a world that is rich and. Like we've talked about, I think we were talking about it with the the Witcher. Um, Madeline, Madeline Langle, also, which also has some interesting creatures, which also has some really interesting creatures. Um, the world and all of the contents of the world are not handed to you in Wrinkle in Time. You right. got to figure it out, which is makes for better storytelling, right? So, mm-hmm. um, I started my discussion with IT because it's kind of the driving force behind the problem of this whole world. And IT, it, it I wanted to ask you. Is it Pennywise the clown? Oh my, yes. Oh gosh. <laughs> oh no, thank you. Um, I wanted to see if you remembered how you visualized it or it when you read the book it. the book describes it as a giant brain mm-hmm. 
So I picture like a it's I pictured like the room that Meg goes into is like a very stark uh-huh. uh, like laboratory. Uh-huh. With like a metal table, like a metal like lab table. Yeah. With a huge brain on it. Okay. That was what I pictured. That's what I pictured too. And then it's very interesting that in the movie, I loved this. In the 2018 movie, Charles Wallace is physically inside like a brain. So I thought that was cool. That was like a really neat Mm -hmm. um, picture of it. I envisioned it the same way, this kind of sterile, like brain in a box almost almost as if you were at like or like in a jar or something yeah oh yeah. gosh um but i really liked the thought process that charles wallace would be walking around like a a brain that was cool in the movie um but according to the wikis um it or it is a bodiless telepathic brain that dominates the planet of Camazots. While IT usually speaks through one of its pawns, um, it can also speak to people telepathically. So um, it can just enter the thoughts of Meg as you read the book, um, which was really freaking terrifying when I was reading that as a kid. Um, And it's, IT is entirely responsible for everything that happens on Camazots. Um, there's also, um, Camazots is also described, I think by Mrs. What's It, as a planet um, of swift changes or of um, like, oh, shoot. A planet that changes its landscape very quickly, you know, so we go from, Mm -hmm. and that's, IT is responsible for that. So um, first we get that very suburban um, Stepford um, Mm. image of the the mom. That was what, that was what terrified me as a kid. Oh yeah, completely. So scary. Um, with the the bouncing of the red the red balls as they're bouncing them, which in the 2018 movie you hear a similar noise, and all of the children on the playground on Earth are playing with red balls, and they make a similar noise. But then when you get to Camazots, um, that noise is made louder and more eerie and kind of distorted a little bit. That gave me chills. Really, really great, great, great job. Um, So IT is kind of an all-knowing, all-sensing kind of corner of evil, really, um, that can get in your thoughts and in your actions. It fully um, takes over our friend Charles Wallace. and also works directly with another big bad scary, the man with the red eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 2003 film, the IT and IT or it, however you feel, um, is directly linked to the man with red eyes. They're the same, but that's different in. Um, I don't think it should be that way. I think that they're two different entities. But yeah, in 2003, they made the two one um and the man with the red eyes is up next um again terrified me as a child terrifying um the prime coordinator what (laughs) when he starts reciting the the numbers and then charles wallace just starts to also recite them and then they they're like logged together and then charles wallace becomes evil and loses all of his childlike um kindness oh what storytelling oh my goodness um but uh to define the character um the man with red eyes is a front for it he interacts directly with the children and kind of makes um makes Charles Wallace join them and kind of takes over um, his brain. Um, Yeah, the prime coordinator. Oh, using math for evil. Oh, my goodness. Um, 
Ugh. I knew math was evil. I know. <laughs> um, so those are kind of the biggest baddies, I think, of this. Into- it's interesting mm-hmm. to have a novel where a human brain and um, like principles of math are the evil. It's so interesting. I I love this book. Um, and then we have so we have the black. Thing, if we move to kind of more in-universe um, thoughts on evil, the Black Thing is a formless, shadowy being and is said to be kind of a source of all evil in the universe. So as we first get into the universe, as we leave Earth and first get into the universe, Meg and Charles Wallace and Calvin say, oh, what's that? And the three Mrs. W's explain kind of that the black thing is taking over the universe and that it's just the idea of evil kind of in a black cloud. It kind of reminds me of the shadow fold in shadow and bone. Yeah. Like where like darkness is a place and it's spreading. Yeah. And we're trying, we have got to fight the darkness. Absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, so good. Um, and so that's a very meta thing, right? It's a black cloud in the universe. Um, but there are also like creature creatures, more specific creatures that we don't get to see in the movie. Um, there are the beasts, Aunt Beast, mm-hmm. um, who's never given a name, but Meg calls her Aunt Beast. Um, an ant beast, um, is a character. So for those who have only seen the movie and have not read the books, um, ant beast is a protector character. She takes Meg, um, when she's stranded on a brand new planet and very sick and possibly dying. Um, ant beast comes and kind of almost takes her into like, I don't know. She has um she has telepathic abilities and she also has like waving tentacles and it always reminded me of like a womb or like a um yeah, very like visceral form of healing and kind of returning to um a womb. Uh in order I, I when I first read the book, I imagined the beast well, the the creatures who live on Ixchel, Ix Ixchel, Ixchel. Sure. Um, is that how you say it? I imagined them looking like Wookies. Um, uh huh. And that is how in the so this scene is in the 2003 adaptation, and they do kind of look like Wookies. Yeah. So I'm like validated there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they always seem to symbolize to me like feminine healing you know with the tentacles Mm -hmm. it always reminded me of like a womb space um so like female identifying healing it doesn't have to you know what I mean but um yeah so it's ant beast is a six-armed eyeless gray or fuzzy brown um creature with telepathic abilities and numerous long waving tentacles um, and is very much a healer, um, on the planet, on a very cold planet called Ixchel. Yes. Um. Ixchel. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um. And, um, DuVernay did try to incorporate this scene into the film, and she found that it just did not match with the flow of the movie as a whole, which I understand. Yeah, I can see that. In I think in books, you have more of a chance for, for like, like, secondary danger and tertiary danger and kind of mm-hmm. those things, but in a movie, it kind of has to all lead up to, like, the big scary, you know? Um... So I, I understand that. Yeah, it kind of cuts it kind of cuts the climactic tension that yeah. you've built by going to this place and then Meg goes back 
and it yeah doesn't quite yeah i could see that not not fitting in a movie totally um uh on the the official wrinkle in time wiki does also mention the happy medium as a distinctly alien character so the happy mm. medium is not humanoid it is um it is alien and as we mentioned she ap- she appears human right like she's human in appearance right but the you kind of get the sense that like she can kind of manipulate her form yeah and so she she's appearing human because the kids are human and it makes them comfortable right right but yeah she kind of she's yeah and I actually, I thought this was interesting. It described um, described the happy medium as, let me find it here. Oh, as um, kind of not not necessarily good or bad, but even, like evenly rational um, and a happy medium. <laughs> so it makes, um, mm-hmm. makes sense. Uh, yeah, she uses her powers to kind of see other people and see, um, gain knowledge of, like, people and places across the universe. She's pretty cool. Um, so we have your aliens, we have your, um, your brains and your, <laughs> your big evil brains, <laughs> but we also have- Love those. <laughs> Love, love a big evil brain. Um, love a big evil brain. <laughs> but if we're talking about this universe, we also have to talk about the planets themselves. Um, mm-hmm. Because location and setting are very much used to tell this story as well. Um, so, I mean, all stories use it, but I think we're playing with things like 2D, 3D, 4D, and sometimes 5D. So the location matters in kind of a unique way. Um, so we have a few planets to go over. So Uriel or um, Uriel. I don't know how you want to pronounce that. Um, I would say that Uriel. Me too. Uriel. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Yeah. I think of the name Muriel. You know, so Uriel. Muriel. Um, Muriel's wedding. Yeah, exactly. Tony Collette. Tony Collette. Uh, <laughs> oh, we love her. Um, so the planet, the planet of Uriel is the first one that they visit, and it is lush and perfect and natural. Um, it has these gorgeous rolling hills and greenery, and it's kind of like. A planet of um, natural perfection. Before we launch into all these scary things, as a first, um, as a first way of viewing the universe, um, it makes sense that the Mrs. W's would take the children here first because it's mm-hmm. it's kind of perfected. Well, it's what we find on Earth, but a little bit perfected. Um, a favorite part for me in this natural landscape is the flowers, who Mrs. Watson mm-hmm. describes as the original gossipers of the universe, which I just always thought was really sweet. Um, I also like the the part in the book where they have the flowers that help them breathe. Yeah. When they like go up too high in the atmosphere um, and they can't breathe the air anymore. And so they hold up the flowers. Yeah. Like, oh, that's like... That's so cool. I love that. A oh. natural, natural solution. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I love that part of the book also. Um, it was interesting to note that the 2018 movie filmed these scenes in New Zealand because there was a drought in California at the time. So they got to go to New Zealand, which I can't think of a better place to film these than like, if you're thinking of natural perfection, you're going to go New Zealand. Um, mm-hmm. New Zealand is where you go to film fantasy. Yeah. Everyone knows that. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, our, our planet Uriel was specifically filmed at Lake Hawea in um, Otago. If you ever want to, like, go visit, which I really do. 
Um, that would be really cool. That would be so cool, right? Um, yes. So Top that DNA on the road. Yes, in New Zealand. Let's go. Let's um, do it. So, let me just move there. Yeah, let's just go right now. It's just, fine. It's fine. Yeah, their prime minister is super cool. Yeah, my uncle well, lives there. Yeah. yeah. <gasps> oh my gosh. Yes, let's do it. Okay. So you go from anyway. <laughs> you go from this kind of perfect planet um, to a few different planets. You visit Orion, which we only see. Um, as kind of the happy wisdom's cave. So we don't see much of that planet um, necessarily, but we do see um, kind of a, your kind of natural cave. Your what you think of when you think of a cave. Um, that's where happy medium lives. So that's the planet of Orion. We don't spend a lot of time there. Um, and then we get to, in the movies, we don't visit this place at all, but um in the books, there's the planet of Ixchel, which is where um, the beasts live and where Ant Beast lives. And it's just a freezing cold wasteland. Like it's... It's Hoth. Exactly. Yes, it, it is Hoth. It's uh, kind of desolate. It's not a good time. Um, no. But it houses these very loving and very sweet characters. Um it shouldn't be surprising that the beasts are some of my favorite. I I love them. <laughs> um, and then, my friends, we get to Camazots. Camazots, uh, which is not the same as Camelot. Allah was made a distant moon ago here. <laughs> yes. It's not- Camelot. It's Camelot. 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 I wonder if that was intention, like if she intentionally chose right a name that kind of sounds like Camelot. Right. Eh. I can like. I don't, know. I don't think anything is accidental. <laughs> I wouldn't know. Oh, um, especially because of what we talked about in the Camelot episodes about like this idea of perfection and you see like the suburban gross perfection in the beginning. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think you're onto something with that. And Camelot, what is kind of viewed as like this golden age, like this utopian society yeah. in legends. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe yeah. This is, I had never made that connection before, but maybe. Yeah. Eh? 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 And I think it's also important to note that in the 2018 film, um, Camazots reflects, um, yeah, to a terrified, like, just, it's just, oh gosh, it's viscerally, like, terrifying, right? And, um, it's the evil planet in the world of Wrinkle in Time, obviously. Um, IT is in charge of all of it. Um, oh, great. I do have the quote. Um, it's called A World of Many Faces because the landscape mm-hmm. changes in order to be um, interesting or alluring to the children. So it mm-hmm. starts as this um Stepford suburbia where um there's also something to be said of sensory processing on this planet like all of the so we see these sub, these um suburban Stepford wives calling to the children to come and get um like a meal and we see children playing with red bouncing balls all in unison and the sound of that kind of penetrates all of the children all of meg and calvin and charles wallace's brains kind of that um really awful rhythmic like mimic of a heartbeat but in a very distorted eerie you don't want to hear any more of it type way um which reminds me of um, how it might feel if you experience a sensory processing disorder with uh, with sounds. Mm. How just mm-hmm. you can't focus because, like, that noise is so awful. 
Um, so I thought that was a really neat, I, I love this movie. Um, I love how they made that sound just so all encompassing. Um, and then it also switches to like a really, um, overcrowded beach with like a decadent spread of food that just tastes like once they've eaten it just tastes like sand Ugh, gosh mm-hmm. so ugh. and that's of course where i don't um, like sand no not really it's rough and coarse and it gets everywhere yeah ugh. i think i messed that up a little bit i was quoting yeah um, attack of the clones that's fine mrs mrs who over here um <laughs> but Rhonda how do you get yes. to these planets um a spaceship no no how do you get there a tesseract you must tesser hmm. um tesser I love the use of tesser as a verb I know it's time to tesser we must tesser <laughs> oh dear um so <laughs> as as we get through the beginning of the story, we learn that the central problem is that Meg's father, Dr. Murray and Mrs. Murray, have made this discovery about Tesseracts and their existence in the universe. And as they further explore it, um, it was originally Mrs. Murray's discovery, and then Dr. Murray works with her on it. And he eventually gets transported into danger because he continues to um, explore this idea and maybe tries one, I think. I think he tries a tesser and then that's what traps him, question mark. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He didn't really know what he was doing. Right. He was just like, let's, uh, let's go for it. <laughs> Yeah, and I yeah, I think there's even a part in the movie where, as he comes back, where he says um, to Mrs. Murray, I didn't follow your notes, or I didn't... Oh, yeah. I didn't heed uh-huh. your um, warning, which I just thought was a really important piece of that, that um, Mrs. Murray kind of knew that this might happen, and he did it anyway, um, so that's important. So... What exactly is a tesseract? I had no idea when I read this. I was like, what on earth? What? What is this? Um, so Elena Nicolau wrote um, a piece on exactly what a tesseract might be. It's a really good oh, article. Good. We can link it because um, <laughs> it really helped me figure it out. Um, she wrote for Refinery21. Um, but in the book... So Meg's brother, Charles Wallace, explains the first, like, the dimensions. And so that's kind of a helpful um, entry point. So the first dimension is a line. The second dimension Mm -hmm. is a square. The third dimension is a cube. The fourth dimension is time. Kind of takes a big jump there. And then the fifth dimension Mm -hmm. is a tesseract. Um, And it's the travel of space and time it's how they connect to one another um and then there's a planet which i don't believe got a name which is a 2d planet um where mrs witch like mistakenly takes them she says oh oops this is 2d we can't we can't be here and so there's that there's a description of the children being suffocated into a dimension that they don't belong so that's how this idea is explored is introduced in the book so you go to the 2d planet where you physically cannot be um and then you you luckily leave that universe pretty quickly and mm-hmm. um that fifth dimension is the Tesseract, which allows for travel between space and time. Um, to directly quote Langle, you see, Mrs. Wetsit says, if a very small insect were to move from the section of a skirt in Mrs. Who's hand to that in Mrs. Who's right, I'm going to start this over. <laughs> you see, Mrs. Wetsit says, if a very small insect were to move from the section of skirt in Mrs. Who's right hand to that in her left, 
it would be quite a long walk for him if he had to walk straight across. Swiftly, Mrs. Hugh brought her hands, still holding the skirt, together. Now you see, Mrs. Watsit said, he would be there without that long trip. That is how we travel. So it's when you fold a <laughs> picnic cloth or a blanket, it's taking from very far away directly to the space. Um, and it's so like, I okay, I... I love that it still doesn't explain how they do it. I know. It's just like, they explain how it happens, but they don't explain how you actually do that. I know. And if you could see me at 10 years old trying to figure out how to test her. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> that is a thing that happened. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's similar in Wheel of Time. There's a thing called the ways, which is how you get from one oh, way yeah, to another yeah. way. Um so that's... I just finished the the second episode of the TV show. <sighs> love oh, it. It's good. It's good. Love, love. I'm never going to read the books, but I'm liking the show. They're so, so good. Um, but yeah, this is a thought process that happens in Wheel of Time as well. Um, it also, in a very different way, happens in Marvel. So we uh-huh. talked about this uh, a little earlier, but in Marvel, a Tesseract um, is more akin to the specific geometric meaning that it has. Um, so in geometry, a tesseract is like a um, a squid. So is a cube. Yeah. It's like a, um, mm-hmm. here's a specific It's quote. a cubed, a cubed cube. Right. Is what they, is how they describe it in A Wrinkle in Time. Of um, like. Yeah. It's. Unlimited power. That kind uh-huh. of thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. A hypercube. A hypercube. Cube yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. And we see it. So Nick Fury describes it as um, power. If we can figure out how to tap it, maybe unlimited power. So it's just a very, mm. it's like a Rubik's cube, but important. Um, <laughs> Are you saying Rubik's cubes aren't important? Not at, well, I take it back. (laughs) Um, Mm, Okay. And in Arcane, there's a sphere that's the same thing. Um, Okay. But thank you for coming to my TED Talk. See, this is why I, this is why it would have been so perfect to connect A Wrinkle in Time to the Marvel Universe. Yeah. Because you've got the Tesseract. Yeah. It, It would have made so much sense. Yeah. Anyway. I digress. Um, <laughs> so that's that. <laughs> that's that. But um, there. So as we said at the beginning of this episode, Aaron was going to lay out some evidence for us. Yeah. And then we're going to try to decide if this, if A Wrinkle in Time is fantasy or science fiction, or is it something else or some combination. Right. Um. And I think it's interesting that you brought Marvel into this because Marvel very similarly has elements of both science fiction and fantasy. Right. Because we have powers coming from science and technology and we have powers that are coming from like the the like divine powers of gods and magic. Right. And things like that too. So it's Yes, it's interesting that we have that an, another connection. Yeah. That, you know, was not capitalized upon. And I'm starting to get a little mad about it. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> so um, when we're looking at A Wrinkle in Time, I guess I've kind of already given away what my answer is about what genre this is. Uh-huh. Um, but maybe you've come to a different conclusion. So, is A Wrinkle in Time science fiction, fantasy, or something else? So, we have a lot of elements of science fiction, which you just talked about. We have space travel. We have theoretical physics. Yeah. In a children's book. It's great. Um, we have extraterrestrial species. And then there's also an element of there in there of, uh, you know, dystopian fiction, like fighting to end this authoritarian regime yeah um t- 
to in my notes I put to rival the Hunger Games. Um, uh huh. <laughs> it's like we because we have a um, uh, the central central intelligence is like the capital in the Hunger Games, right? Right. Anyway, um, okay, but then there are also a lot of elements that don't fit into science fiction framework as we would traditionally define it. So, like the Tesseract, um, the act of tes of tessering, it's never really explained in a scientific way. You know, we have like right. in in science fiction that incorporates like light speed travel, they always have some kind of there's always some kind of like scientific sounding explanation. That, yeah. Like, oh, we invented this special kind of of engine or this special kind of fuel that allows for this kind of travel. Um, but that's not the case with tessering or with the tesseract. Like it, we just kind of accept. Oh, okay. Like they just they just do it. Yeah. Um, and then also the misses themselves. Um, how you know, what kind of what kind of creatures are they? Do we ever see them in their true forms? Right. How are they able to change forms? Are they supernatural beings? Are they, you know, just extremely powerful? natural beings um is there scientific yeah um and then also we have in a wrinkle in time we have kind of a general emphasis on like abstract and mystical forces of good and evil that we don't usually get in science fiction um except star wars but star wars isn't science fiction either so right um so we could say that it's like science fantasy um but star wars is also science fantasy uh so i don't know if we want to say that a wrinkle in time is the same genre as star wars i don't i don't know uh it has similar themes i guess yeah uh but anyway um (laughs) so uh this question has been explored by other people before um so this is a a blog called the geek mom um she decided to explore this question too i reference her too oh you did (laughs) so she lays out this um uh she kind of takes it through um like this process of trying to define each element um of a wrinkle in time, whether it fits into science fiction or fantasy. So, um, and she calls it uh, the speculative fiction tesseract. So that's basically her premise that like, we're not going to call it science fiction. We're not going to call it fantasy. We're going to call it speculative fiction. Right. um, Which I like. Um, So she says it's going to fall closer to science fiction than to fantasy, but not all the way. Um, And she says it'll be toward the future side of the middle of the timeline dimension. So, like, it's not based in the past. Um, It takes, she says, it takes place in the contemporary near future. But that contemporary was pre the Beatles coming to America. So it's got an old-fashioned futuristic vibe. So it's kind of a mid-century future. Yeah. If that makes sense um she notes that the the computing machines at central central intelligence um use punch tapes which is a mid-century technology right um (laughs) right um so we'll stick with slightly future of contemporary ish (laughs) (laughs) um (laughs) and then speaking of camazots dystopian is the closest wrinkle falls to one end of any of the dimensions we've looked at so far even earth is considered shadowed the existence of utopian Uriel and relatively happy Ixchel keep it from totally bottoming out in dystopian. So we have the idea of a dystopia, but it's not like the entire world or the entire universe of this book is dystopian. Yeah. Um, the speculative elements are immersive enough to place it closer to the, let's call it the far out end of the realism spectrum. But our protagonists are ordinary, highly intelligent, but otherwise ordinary Earth people who have ordinary Earth problems, besides the whole dad stranded in another galaxy thing. So not too far out. (laughs) Um, Though the plot is suspenseful enough, the real focus is on the character growth. 
Meg's developing confidence, the relationships between her and her parents, her brother, and her new friend, possibly boyfriend. And then she concludes, as for large scale versus small scale, well, that's the point of the book, isn't it? Good versus evil is is a huge scale deal happening throughout the universe and over eons. But in this story, Meg learns that even rescuing one scientist and one little boy from evil's clutches is important enough. Even an awkward nerd girl who keeps doing everything wrong can be as much of a hero as a celestial being. So large scale or small scale, it's both. Um, yeah. I love that. Uh, yeah. So it's, I and I like that it's, that we don't really get a definitive answer right there either, um, which fits with the theme of the book. Um, yeah. And then I also wanted to look at another, um, a, a particular element of science fiction that we find in A Wrinkle in Time, the idea of dystopia and utopia, um, because we have a, both a utopia and a dystopia yeah. in A Wrinkle in Time. Um and this is, you know, something that, you know, is explored a lot in in science fiction and fantasy. Um, but I think we think of it as more of a science fiction um, concept. Yeah. Um, but as I was rereading um, A Wrinkle in Time fairly recently, um, I was kind of struck by how Langle's work reminds me a lot of Ursula K. Le Guin. And vice versa. Okay. Um, I haven't read a lot of Lagoon, but what I have read of her, I see a lot of parallels and connections between her and Langle. Yeah. Um, especially Lagoon's story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas, which is probably like her most famous, like I think everybody reads it in middle middle school. Uh-huh. Um uh, so I don't, have you read it? I haven't. Um, I've heard okay. a lot about her, but I haven't read anything of hers. Okay. Yeah. So the ones who walk away from Omelas is really, um, there's really like no like plot to the story. It's more of a thought experiment, uh, but it's about this utopian future society in which Everyone is cared for, like every, like there's enough resources and food for everyone. Everyone's generally pretty happy. Um, but the catch is that in order for this to be possible, a child must be kept locked in a dungeon, abused and neglected. And the citizens of Omelas know that the child is there and they eventually, like every citizen has a has you know a, a point where they learn about the child they learn about this faustian bargain that's been struck to enable their perfect lives but the the story says if anyone helps the child their society will be destroyed and this perfect world will come crumbling down and no one will have you know a good a good life anymore yeah um and so no one does no one does anything to help the child um, there, if, um, if they find that they can't continue to live in this society, their only option is to leave, to just walk away, which is where the title comes from. The ones who walk away from Omelas. Um, and so this is like, I think more than the idea of a utopia, I think this is more a critique of, um, utilitarian ethical philosophy, which I wish that I had talked about the story when we talked about the good place, because this would have been a great right. It would have fit right into that discussion. Um, but in essence, the citizens of Omelas have chosen the greater good over alleviating the suffering of a child, right? Which kind of calls into question, like, is the greater good really? worth it right you know if, right. if this is the cost um which i find really interesting um but the descriptions of omelas in the story are very sparse but they evoke images that reading now as an adult remind me a lot of camazots yeah um omelas is initially posited as a utopia and camazots is very clearly a dystopia 
but they're similar in that the seemingly perfect harmony of these societies comes at a great cost. In Kamazots, the people are being controlled by it, and any deviation from their like perfectly synchronized, prescripted patterns are met with harsh punishment. We don't know exactly how harsh that punishment gets, but we know that yeah, know, it's not good. Um, and then Omalas, in a sense, is just as controlled as Kamazots. It's controlled by the people's fear of losing their perfect lives if they question the status quo. So Omalas and Kamazots both rely on the compliance of their citizens to perpetuate this order that's been established and this illusion of this perfect utopia. But their citizens ultimately suffer under that order and under that hierarchy. Yeah. It's interesting to think, I think it's interesting to think of these two societies in comparison to each other because Kamazots is so clearly a dystopia um, because we see it through Meg's point of view and, you know, she's an outsider to that society. Yeah. But with Omalas, it's really also a dystopia. It's not a utopia. Yeah. Um, but we're we're introduced to that element of it more gradually, um, because like we're from like, um, we're from we're looking at Omelas from more of a, a neutral, I guess, point of view. Sure. Um, sure. Initially, um, but I was curious, like, what if what if we saw Omelas from the view of the child? It would be very different. Right. Um, so yeah, I think um I think it's just interesting to to look at these two works side by side yeah. and see like kind of the same um not exactly the same but just like a that very similar idea of like how much of your autonomy, how much of your humanity are you willing to give up to you know, have, you know, the security or the, the, the luxury that societal hierarchy can offer. Yeah. Um, and I, and I mean, like with the people in Kamazots, like, I don't know how voluntary their participation in the society is. Right. We get the sense that it's, that they're like pretty much completely controlled. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I just wonder. Yeah. I yeah I want to read like this is gonna sound kind of weird but like I want to read like the uh, Kamazots written in like a novel for adults yeah like, explore that a little bit more sign me I, up I'm curious absolutely yeah. um yeah <laughs> um as we wrap up I. Just wanted to include this. I don't think that this discussion would be complete without also mentioning N.K. Jemison's short story, The Ones Who Stay and Fight, mm -hmm. which is um, it's from, I think, 2018. Um, in, and it's kind of in conversation with Omelas. Okay. And kind of a reaction to... Um, I wrote a blog post about it a few years ago that we can link for yeah. anyone who's interested in reading. Um, but it's kind of in conversation with this idea of um, of like what it really takes to to keep a utopian society mm -hmm. utopi utop utopic yeah yeah <laughs> utopian um, and it kind of proposes another perspective in looking at how that's how that's perpetuated. Um, so please go read that that story. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a really great story. That whole collection, um, How Long Till Black Future Month is mm -hmm. excellent. Anything by N.K. Jemison is excellent. Yeah. Um, but please please go read that. But yeah. Woo. Yeah. That's uh hey folks. We're <laughs> we're super cheery. Um Yeah. <laughs> fine family fun. Um, yes. <laughs> I would also but yeah that's yes go on oh I would also I think um because it was the time that it was I think there are there's a very 
specific gender dichotomy in this work also. And I think that would also be really interesting to remove that dichotomy and explore this world um, with the knowledge that we have that gender is fluid. I think that would also be Mm -hmm. a a new lens to look at this, this world through. Um, We should get to like in the book, in the book, they it's, like all of the boys have balls and all of the girls have jump ropes. Yeah. Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. But I think in the, in the 2018 movie, don't they kind of, they kind of mixed it up. Like Mm -hmm. some of the girls had balls. Some of the boys had jump ropes, I think. Yeah. And like, it starts to happen in the 2018. And I think we could take it a step further. um, And that's something I want to (laughs) see. But I think it's also like, I think we could also view that aspect of Camazots where it's this very like rigid gender structure. Mm-hmm. Like that is part of the forced conformity right. of this society. Right. So I don't necessarily like I don't necessarily think that it like I think as long as it's made clear that like that's you know kind of in that's intentional yeah. in keeping that gender binary yeah in that element that it's because this is a forced structure on our society yeah as just as Camazots is forcing people to conform to these prescripted roles yeah it's which like it's that's kind of a lot to communicate in a kids movie but like (laughs) right right (laughs) I think that you could make the argument for keeping that that in there you know yeah I want to see I guess I want to see more of it in like other places in the world once we leave Camazots that kind of thing um but yeah absolutely um oh this this whole piece is so good I I'm a fan it's really good (laughs) yeah I like it a lot I like it a lot. I like it a lot. Um, I do want to, if if there was ever like, okay, so there, this is inspiring me to recommend some science fiction that explores gender and and gender yeah. like binaries and and forced um, structures. Um, so Ursula again also wrote uh, the Left Hand of Darkness, mm-hmm. which has some ideas of gender. Um, you know, like it, yeah, it's in there. Um, (laughs) and then there's also, um, Anne Leckie. Um, I always forget how to pronounce the word. It's, it's ancillary or ancillary justice. Yeah. (laughs) Um, is also very, very interesting ideas about how this, you know, spacefaring society structures structures their gender. Yeah. Um, and then also, I would recommend an unkindness of ghosts by River Solomon. Uh huh. Um, Solomon is non-binary, mm-hmm. and their main character is as well. Yeah. Um, and so that, and it's a science fiction, um, as well. So yeah. We will we'll put those book recs somewhere, maybe on Instagram. Yeah. Um, yeah. Check those out. Anyway. <clears throat> okay. What are we? Yeah. <laughs> Which leads us to follow us on Instagram. Follow us on the Instas. Um, <laughs> so next week we're going to go into more of a discussion of the movie and also um, maybe some of the reviews that it got and a discussion of why it's important to have scary things available for children because it's important. Basically, we're, we're going to talk about who is this for? Who is this for? Who is A Wrinkle in Time for? Yeah. That's what we're going to talk about. Yeah. So that'll be interesting. We have opinions. We do. Yeah. <laughs> and we're excited to talk about them. We are. Um, yeah. So join us for that. Yeah. 
we have been talking for an hour, so we should probably so we should probably go now. You're welcome, and <laughs> you are very welcome indeed. <laughs> All right, okay. friends. We'll see you later. Bye.